Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. I'm your host, Adrian. Once again, you're stuck with me, so listen up, because this one's going to be good. Today, we're talking about one of my absolute favorite topics, and a topic that I have quite a bit of personal experience with, chronic pelvic pain and gut health. As any good naturopath can tell you, it all revolves around the gut. And when I say it all, I mean literally everything. Both health and illness start and end in the gut. And we'll get to why that is in just a bit. But first, I have some really, really, really exciting news. Sassy Speculum, the podcast that you are currently imbibing in, has received its very first sponsor. I almost wish that the sponsor had come along prior to episode four because it would have fit in with the topic a little bit more congruently. But this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. In my last episode, I talked about how I have had to tell patients that there is an 18-month waiting list to see a licensed therapist here in Oregon. The shock and immediate anxiety that they feel when I have said this is palpable. No one in an acute or chronic mental health situation should have to wait that long for any kind of help. And now, because of BetterHelp, there's another option. You can get paired with a licensed therapist in as little as 48 hours after signing up for BetterHelp. We all need a little bit of help sometimes, and it's nothing to be embarrassed or worried about. BetterHelp has helped over 3 million people, and you could be one of them. BetterHelp offers affordable, easy-to-navigate, and discreet professional services from a licensed therapist. Don't let your health hold you back. Sign up today at www.betterhelp.com sassyspeculum for 10% off your first month, and you could be matched with a therapist before you can say Sassy Speculum five times fast. That's www.betterhelp.com slash S-A-S-S-Y-S-P-E-C-U-L-U-M. Speaking of last week's episode, I have to tell you guys, sharing my own personal anxiety and panic attack stories was hands down like the scariest thing I've ever done on this show so far. And telling the world about like how I pooped on a table in front of my coworkers or when I peed blood for my UTI. No anxiety. None. I had not a single part of my body telling me, hey, this is way too much information for strangers. Maybe tone it down a notch. But oh my god, when I posted the anxiety episode, I was absolutely terrified. To the point that I even considered taking it down. I had every single part of my body telling me that it wasn't okay to have shared that much. No one cares. No one else has the same anxieties as you. Blah, 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 blah. The amount of shitstorming that I gave myself was honestly impressive. So if the anxiety episode spoke to you in any way, please let me know, either anonymously or not, because in all honesty, I will probably be anxious about that information being out on the internet until the day that I die. Yay, anxiety! Um, If you haven't already, please rate and review this podcast after you're done listening today. This is what gets my anxiety stories further out into the world. So if you want to laugh at how higher my anxiety can climb, please, please, please rate and review to share with the world. And today's episode is going to be really, really informative for quite a few people, so I would love for it to get further out into society. Also, if you're listening on Spotify, there's a new little trick. You can rate and review podcasts now on the app. It only takes one click to do it on any platform, though, so spend five seconds today and click on those little stars. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm also, I'm very excited because um, episode one on female anatomy and hymens has now reached over 100 listens, and that just seems like super duper cool to me that you guys are loving the podcast so much. I can't believe that I've already gotten sponsors, and I found out that this podcast is already doing better than 50% of all podcasts out there, 
which is like totally shocking to me, but also super duper cool. So thank you guys for keeping listening and keep telling me what you think. And now finally, we can get to what you guys are actually here for more anxiety. No, I'm totally kidding. Um, I honestly don't think that I could do that to myself or handle that again. Um, Today, we are talking about chronic pelvic pain and the importance of gut health and how the two are interlaced. The definition of chronic pelvic pain is non-cyclic pain, which means that it doesn't seem to be related to your menstrual cycle. For more than six months, it's located in the pelvis, anterior abdominal wall, or at or below the belly button or your butt. The pain must be sufficiently severe to cause a functional disability or require medical care. The symptoms can't correlate with sex, and there cannot be evidence of cancer, irritable bowel syndrome, or pregnancy for the diagnosis to be accurate. If that sounds like you or someone you know, listen up. And if it doesn't, I don't care. You'll come across it one day, so keep listening. Approximately 14 to 24% of women within reproductive age have diagnosed chronic pelvic pain, but 60% of women living every day with this pain never receive a specific diagnosis. These women, myself included, have just been told things like, you're making it up, there's nothing wrong with you, I get cramps too and mine aren't that bad, stop complaining, you must just have a really low pain tolerance, take some Advil, call it good, and so much more. But with those statistics, let's say there are 100 women in a room, 14 to 24 of them will have chronic pelvic pain, and 8 to 14 of them have never had an actual diagnosis for why they're in pain all the time. That's a lot of women out there who haven't been believed or haven't had doctors actually listen to them. The most common answers women get are to try birth control or just take your uterus out. In fact, 12% of hysterectomies are because of chronic pelvic pain. So now that we know how prevalent chronic pelvic pain is and how commonly women are being sloughed off to the side and told to deal with it, we can dive into why women develop pelvic pain. And the truth of the matter is not, well, we don't actually know. That's the easy cop-out. There are six major sources that can contribute to pelvic pain. Your gut, your urinary system, your reproductive organs, your brain, your musculoskeletal system, your nerves, and your immune system, and more likely than not, it's coming from more than one of those sources. And while the pain is felt in the gynecological region, only 29% of chronic pelvic pain cases are caused by gynecological issues. The most common reasons for chronic pelvic pain in one of those systems to develop are as follows. Number one, psychological reasons. Emotions, especially fear, guilt, and rejection, have a very strong effect on our bodies. Fear of losing control, relationship insecurities, worries about having children, creating careers, or creating relationships, they can impact our systems more than you know. And there are some cultures that raise their kiddos to believe that their genitals and or sexual encounters are sinful or dirty, or teach them to reject their femininity. These beliefs have a profound lasting effect. The second reason is physical or sexual abuse. 25 to 40% of women with chronic pelvic pain have had or are currently experiencing one or both of these types of abuse. Depression and anxiety can stimulate chronic pain. Pain and depression share hormone abnormalities, and the two commonly go hand in hand, unfortunately, which can stimulate a strong cyclical pain pattern. Mediators of inflammation can cause chronic pain, as I will dive in later. Inflammation is not necessarily the cause of a disease. It is a symptom and a sign that your body is trying to alert you that something is off. More than 40% of Americans have chronic inflammation, and most don't even know it, or know how it's affecting their overall health. One of the last most common reasons for the development of chronic pelvic pain is somatization, 
which is kind of a blend of some of the ones I've already talked about. It's the expression of psychological or emotional factors as physical symptoms. Everyone experiences somatization, but for some people, it gets in the way of their everyday life. An example of somatization is crying when you feel sad or breathing faster when you're scared. These are physical responses to everyday emotions that happen through the mind-body connection. For the people whom somatization affects them negatively, they have often two or more GI symptoms, one neurological symptom, and one reproductive symptom. These people also often consider themselves hypochondriacs and can have obsessive behaviors. Raise your hand if that sounded like you because I'm pretty sure I just described myself to a T. Those are the most common reasons for someone to develop chronic pelvic pain in one of those six bodily systems that I listed prior. The thing is, chronic pelvic pain is a symptom. It's not a diagnosis. It's your body's way of saying, hey, something isn't right. I'm going to hurt you until you make it right. The most common diagnoses that can cause chronic pelvic pain are endometriosis, interstitial cystitis, irritable bowel syndrome, and depression. Those conditions are from four different body systems. You can have pelvic pain because of something actually going on in your pelvis, like your reproductive organs or your urinary tract, and you can also have it from something going on in your intestines or something going on in your brain. And those are the top four reasons why people have chronic pelvic pain. So how does that make sense? How does your depression cause your pelvic pain? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked. The human body has this amazing mind-body connection. It allows us to be the fully functioning, autonomous human beings that we are, but it can also go awry, leading to chronic conditions. One of the most important mind-body connections is the gut-brain access. Remember in the beginning when I said that the gut is the center of everything? Well, here's where we dive into why and how that is and how it relates to chronic pelvic pain. Hidden deep inside your belly, within the walls of your GI tract, is your second brain. It's called the enteric nervous system. It's a system comprised of two microscopically thin layers of more than 100 million nerve cells lining your entire gastrointestinal tract, from your esophagus, which is the tube right after your mouth that carries food to your stomach, all the way through, all the way to your booty hole. This second brain isn't capable of thought like your main brain, obviously, but it is in charge of some pretty large aspects of what makes you, you, and it communicates with your main brain all the time with profound results. The goal of this crosstalk to monitor and integrate gut functions, as well as to link emotional and thought centers of the brain with other intestinal functions, such as your immune system activation, intestinal permeability, which is the ability for the intestines to allow certain nutrients through and just say nope to others. Enteric reflexes, which control swallowing, moving food through the tract, and pushing out your poops. And finally, enteroendocrine signaling, which involves cells that produce and release hormones in response to stimuli. Scientists and researchers have known about the second brain, or our enteric nervous system, for quite some time, and research has been abundant. But what is now emerging is the concept of a microbiome gut-brain access. The microbiome is simply the microorganisms inside your body and my microbiome is vastly different from your microbiome. This is not something that you're born with, but something that you acquire. At birth, the intestines are actually believed to be sterile. If you were delivered vaginally, you picked up plenty of bacteria while you were squished through that canal, and if you were delivered via C-section, you had significantly less microbes for the first few months of your life, but studies have shown that by six months, there are no differences between the flora of vag babies and C-section babies. 
family genes, your environment, medication usage, age, intestinal pH, and most importantly, diet play a huge role in determining what kind of microbiota live in your belly, creating an individualized slew of good and bad bugs inside of you. In a healthy gut, there are more than 50 different species of bacteria, but it's dominated by two species, the Bacteroides and the Firmicutes. The impact that these buggies have on your gut-brain access is profound. There are so many bacterial cells just in the GI tract that they actually outnumber the total number of cells within the human body by a factor of 10. And the number of genes written by the bugs in your GI tract outnumber the total number of human genes by more than 100 times. So the bacteria bugs in your gut play a huge role on who you are and how you interact with the world. The bacteria interact not only with just your intestinal cells and your enteric nervous system, but they act directly with your central nervous system, which is your spinal cord and your brain, through neuroendocrine and metabolic pathways. There is proof that the microbiome plays a large role in the development of depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, and even autism. That saying, you are what you eat, is probably the most accurate stupid saying ever, And the gut microbiota have the ability to alter nutrient availability as well as mucosal immune activation. This is important. Your immune cells reach their teeny tiny arms through the gut wall into the tubes to interact with your microbes. When they accomplish this, cytokines are produced which run throughout your entire body. Cytokines are little buggers in their own right. They're substances that regulate the nature, intensity, and duration of the immune response. You have both pro- and anti-inflammatory cytokines, and the ones more likely to be stimulated by bad microbes are the pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are a direct trigger for pathological pain. They have been linked to several chronic diseases, and dysregulation of these cytokines have been linked to depression and other neurological diseases. Once the immune cells reach through the gut wall and they make contact with a bad microbe, we get release of our first pro-inflammatory cytokine, IL-1. This cytokine is responsible for causing malaise and depression, among other things. When you get sick, all you want to do is lay around on the couch, right? That's strictly because of IL-1 coming onto the scene. In regard to the gut, it is released in order to provide repair of the gut lining. Our next cytokine, IL-6, is then released. It's emotional effect, anxiety, and stress. And then there's TNF-alpha, which makes you hostile and further depressed. And this dude is actually in control of the development of colon cancer. All of these cytokines, as well as others, are pro-inflammatory and they are released when there is a microbe in your system that shouldn't be there. In summary, when your gut is overrun with bad bugs and there aren't enough good ones in there, which is unfortunately more common in our country than not, your body reacts by causing a chronic inflammatory reaction where you are subconsciously becoming less happy, more anxious, more hostile, and more stressed out in general. Your body is saying, stop putting in bad bugs and give me some good ones so that I can thrive, please. So you may be thinking right now, um, okay, Adrian, I get it. If I stop eating flaming Hot Cheetos, I'll be happier. Now, what does that have to do with pelvic pain? My first answer to that question is, I love flaming Hot Cheetos. And well, yes, eating excessive amounts of them will probably cause you to feel terrible, both emotionally and physically. They are delicious, so I get it. And my second answer is, hold on, we're getting there. Evidence indicates that the good microbiota of the GI tract can make hormones. Actually, quite a few of our hormones come from our gut as well as our brains, like serotonin and dopamine and GABA and brain-derived neurotropic factor, which from here on out I will call BDNF. And these hormones not only play a role on your mood, which is well known, 
but they also have a large role in our digestion, our blood clotting, further hormone production, and so much more. That being said, the bugs in our gut can either make too much or too little of these hormones that we need to survive. Too much of some of these hormones can cause anxiety, ADHD, schizophrenia, diarrhea, desires to overeat, and nausea, and too little of them can cause low libido, depression, anxiety, ADHD, excessive tumor growth, insomnia, and poor memory. BDNF, one of those hormones that we make in our gut as well as our brain, is actually almost 100% under microbe control. This hormone increases brain plasticity, memory, and cognitive functions, and when you do something like take antibiotics, all of the bugs in your gut are stripped out, even the good ones, causing an absolute depletion of BDNF. All of these hormones are made in the brain and the gut. So as you can see, gut health and the health of our microbiome is key to keeping us happy and healthy and keeping our hormones in balance as every system in the body is connected and our gut is intrinsically linked to our overall health and hormone balance. This is where we dive into pelvic pain. There's a collection of bacteria in the gut that is capable of breaking down the body circulating estrogen. These are called the estrobilome, and they affect estrogen levels in general, which can impact weight, libido, mood, bone health, cholesterol levels, vaginal lubrication, and weight, pain. When you have good bugs living in your gut, the estrobilome produces perfect levels of an enzyme called beta-glucuronidase, which helps the liver to put estrogen into its biologically active form. This active form is the only form of estrogen that allows estrogen to be beneficial to the body. If you have an imbalance of bugs and the bad outweighs the good, which is the case in most Americans, your estrogen levels become imbalanced as well because there's then too much beta-glucuronidase, which then doesn't allow estrogen to be turned into its active form. It is then absorbed back into the bloodstream, resulting in an estrogen dominance. Basically, this unconjugated estrogen is just dead weight, literally, as estrogen dominance leads to weight gain. This is because estrogen that isn't used by the body efficiently is stored in fat cells, causing them to grow. Also, elevated beta-glucuronidase levels are associated with PMS and obesity and metabolic syndrome, breast cancers, endometriosis, infertility, mood disturbances, and heart disease. There's so much here. And if that description was confusing, here's a, here's a breakdown. You have certain bugs in your gut that break down estrogen in order for it to be used beneficially in the body. If you have too many bad bugs and not enough good ones, your body can't break down estrogen, causing it to circulate throughout the body until it finds a home in your fat cells, causing your fat cells to grow in order to fit the estrogen inside. This makes you gain weight. I found a great schematic that visualizes the downstream effect of gut dysbiosis on estrogen, which will be on my Instagram after this episode is posted, so check it out. Okay, I've been talking at you guys a lot and about some pretty hefty sciencey stuff, and if you've kept up this far, I'm truly impressed. As I said in the beginning, I am no stranger to pelvic pain. I have endometriosis, so I'm going to tell you some of my best endo stories, and then we can get back to some science. Endometriosis is when the uterine lining that is supposed to, well, line the uterus, grows somewhere other than inside said uterus. It can be on the uterus, a fallopian tube, an ovary, your colon, which is where the majority of mine happens to be. It can grow on a nerve or a blood vessel even, and it can even grow somewhere outside of the pelvic area or even far away from the abdomen. Shortly after I graduated from college, I decided that I wanted to donate my eggs, for which you cannot be on hormonal birth control. But also, you know, birth control is important. 
So I decided with my brain full of absolutely no medical knowledge that I was going to get the Paragard IUD, which is the copper non-hormonal IUD. Remember that pooping on the table story from episode one? This was the devil that caused that story. I'm going to start out by saying that the Paragard works wonders for some people. I'm not denying that. And if you're considering getting one, don't. It works by literally scratching the hell out of your uterus enough that it causes an inflammatory reaction that is toxic to both sperm and eggs, therefore preventing pregnancy and causing a huge sustained inflammatory reaction. I've talked a bit about inflammation already, but hold on, more is coming. The Paragard like literally ruined my life for a year that I let it reside in my little baby uterus. I was consistently in severe pain that caused me to lose my job because I couldn't go to work consistently. I'm honestly shocked that my boyfriend and friends even wanted to hang out with me because I was probably such a better butthole that entire time and really spent most of my time in bed or throwing up. This was also the time when I had C. diff, so my toilet saw quite a bit of action that year, but that's a story for another episode. During my one year of Paragard Hell, I saw the ceiling of the emergency room not once, not twice, but five times because I was in so much pain that I thought my organs were trying to sword fight their way out of my body. And every single time the doctors told me, we can't find anything wrong with you, it's in your head, you can go. Every time. So pelvic pain is really fun because not only can it totally rule, rule your life, but no one actually believes you that it's there. Every month as a preteen, all the way into being an adult, I would have to live through simultaneously vomiting and pooping while blood zooted out of my body, and on top of that, having a fever because of that lovely inflammatory reaction causing IL-1 to activate, which on top of making you feel like crap also spikes a fever, and then I'd have somebody standing over me telling me to give it up already and get over it. To relate this back to gut microbiota, they have shown that shifts to lower lactobacilli concentrations, which are the good guys, and higher gram-negative bacteria levels have been demonstrated in the guts of women with endometriosis. These gram-negative bacteria are more likely to produce beta-glucuronidase, which as we now know leads to increased levels of estrogen metabolites and therefore drives further the estrogen-mediated disease of endometriosis. So, if you're one of the lucky people like myself who deals with chronic pelvic pain, we now know that your microbiome is so freaking important when it comes to understanding the root of the pain. Sure, there are also lots of things that we can address when looking for a root cause, but as I've said now multiple times in this episode, it all starts with the gut. If you're running wild with nasty bugs in your belly, it will be impossible for you to get better and live pain-free. That's the bottom line. What you eat really truly does matter. And I know that many of us have been told to keep an eye on our diet, eat healthy, blah, 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 blah. But people telling us these things are typically telling them to us to encourage us to lose weight or to get that beach body that we want or sometimes to help us build muscle mass. It's rarely ever under the pretense of healing from or avoiding a chronic disease. What is considered healthy for the sole purpose of losing weight isn't actually what's considered healthy for the purpose of healing your body which, side note, will also help you drop some pounds. So what's the difference? And once again, to preface this convo, this is not medical advice. I'm explaining important differences, and please talk with your doctor before making any changes to your diet. To lose weight, one is typically advised to cut down on calories predominantly. Eating 500 calories per day less than before will typically cut you down one pound per week. The main goal of this dietary counseling is to take in less calories than you put out. So exercising and eating less are the main goals. This isn't necessarily quote-unquote healthy. 
In fact, it's not healthy at all for weight loss to be your sole goal because unfortunately it's just not sustainable. To heal the microbiome, there are many different ideologies and of course, it depends on the person, their symptom picture, and their goals. In general, we're wanting to rebalance our gut microflora so that the good guys outweigh the bad ones and decrease overall inflammation within the body. Inflammation is a symptom of a disease process. When you sprain your ankle, it becomes inflamed because the ankle is recruiting specialized cells in order to heal that sprain. Your ankle doesn't become inflamed and then you sprain it. Inflammation is your body's way of saying, hey, I need fixing. And it's always in response to one or more triggers. Prolonged inflammation is due to prolonged exposure to one or more inflammation-generating causes, like poor diet, poor stress management, not getting enough sleep, endocrine imbalances, or toxins. We have been inundated in this country with the belief that heart disease and diabetes and hypertension and even eczema are the norm because we see it so frequently. But the truth is, chronic disease and chronic inflammation is not physiologically normal, inflammation solely exists as a response to resolve a problem. And here is the absolute truth. Are you ready? You have chronic pelvic pain due to chronic inflammation from somewhere in your body, most likely your gut, and it's fixable. Find where it's coming from, get the inflammation under control, and you will see changes. I guarantee it. The problem with the American healthcare system, and I promise to get off my soapbox in just a minute, is that the doctors deal with the long-term management of inflammatory consequences. They address the abnormal cholesterol and blood pressure and A1C numbers without actually addressing the underlying metabolic inflammatory causes of those abnormal numbers. It's treating the manifestation of the problem, not the problem itself. Treat the gut imbalances and thus the inflammation, and then you're addressing the upstream contributors to the chronic disease. Suddenly, diseases aren't so chronic. Okay, I'm pretty sure that I've beat that dead horse dramatically. So let's switch gears from gut dysbiosis and talk more about pelvic conditions in general. The most common gynecological reasons to have chronic pelvic pain are endometriosis, adenomyosis, and adhesions. And because so many people deal with dysmenorrhea, I'm going to cover that as well. Let's actually start with dysmenorrhea, which technically it doesn't qualify as chronic pelvic pain because it's a cyclical condition. But 20 to 90% of adolescent women report painful menses, so it's a very prevalent topic. Dysmenorrhea is defined as difficult menstrual flow or painful periods in women with normal pelvic anatomy. It consists of intermittent spasms of cramping pelvic pain beginning shortly before or when you start bleeding, and it lasts typically one to three days. One can also have systemic symptoms like nausea and vomiting or diarrhea, fatigue, fever, headaches, and lightheadedness, and the pain can also radiate down your legs or around the lower back. In the United States, because of painful periods, we lose 600 million work hours and $2 billion every year, and it is the leading cause of recurrent short-term school absences in young girls. To me, that's a problem. That many women are losing time that they could be in school learning how to save the world or at work bringing home enough money to support their family because their periods are too damn painful? That's some BS if you ask me. If painful periods were a man's problem, we would have solved it by now. But also, I guess if it were a man's problem, all of our gender roles would be reversed and there would most likely still be a problem. But there are two different categories dysmenorrhea can fit into. There's primary dysmenorrhea, which is due to no observable organic cause, and it starts typically 6 to 12 months after a girl gets her period for the first time, and it's characterized by spasms. 
Then there's secondary dysmenorrhea. This is due to a pelvic pathology, and instead of being spasmodic, it's congestive in nature. Symptoms can include heavy bleeding, bleeding between periods, painful sex, bleeding after sex, and even infertility. The most common cause of secondary dysmenorrhea is endometriosis, which I'll get to in a minute. The causes of primary dysmenorrhea, remember the painful periods that have no visible cause or pelvic pathology, is due to a few things. First, it can be due to a release of prostaglandins, which are fatty acids that have hormone-like effects. These prostaglandins come from cells on the inside of your uterus and they float into the menstrual blood, causing uterine contractions, less blood flow to the uterus, and sensitization of nerve endings within the pelvis. Women with more severe dysmenorrhea have higher levels of the specific prostaglandin PGF2-alpha within their blood. Second, a hormone called vasopressin, which is typically used to control water retention in the kidneys, can also increase uterine contractility and cause less blood flow to the pelvis due to vasoconstriction. Moving on to endometriosis and adenomyosis. Endometriosis, which I defined earlier, is when the uterine lining is found outside of the uterus, and adenomyosis is when the uterine lining grows within the walls of the uterus instead of only on the inside. Endometriosis is the most common disease affecting humankind, affecting 10-15% to 15% of the general population, with the highest prevalence of diagnosis happening between ages 25 and 29. However, it takes an average of 11.7 years for endometriosis to be diagnosed in symptomatic women. It's an odd disorder because it doesn't matter how much or how little tissue you have growing outside the uterus. The pain can be a 0 out of 10 all the way to a 10 out of 10. What really matters is where it's located in your body. Actually, 40% of women who are asymptomatic and have had kiddos and are undergoing fallopian tube snips have been found to have endometriosis incidentally. So you can have it and you can have no symptoms at all or symptoms that could leave you bedridden for multiple days out of the month. There's been a considerable debate about why endometriosis occurs in the first place. The first theory is reflux menstruation. This is the earliest and most widely accepted theory that menstrual blood and uterine tissue enters into the abdominal cavity by flowing up and out of the uterus through the fallopian tubes, which if you remember from episode one, the fallopian tubes hover near the ovaries, but there's a little space between the end of the tube and the ovary. So there is room for the blood to eke out. And this is also how ectopic pregnancies can happen. The egg doesn't quite make it into that little tube opening, but back to endo. So the blood and uterine tissue flows up and out of the uterus instead of down and out through the vagina. It then embeds in surrounding tissue and will grow and shrink with hormonal influence. The second theory is that women with endometriosis have certain immune dysfunctions, causing them to be unable to clear up the uterine tissue once it implants outside of the uterus. They have found higher amounts of white blood cells and those pro-inflammatory cytokines that I talked about earlier in the abdominal fluid of women with endometriosis. A third theory is that the tissues have traveled around the body via the lymphatic or circulatory system. This is the theory that best describes why some people have lesions on their lungs or on their shoulder. A fourth theory has to do with estrogen dominance of the disease and a defective formation and metabolism of estrogen. We all know what happens now with increased estrogen in the body, but another aspect is that when estrogen is high, that neurotransmitter that I talked about earlier called BDNF, the one that helps with memory, it increases. And on top of helping with memory, it also increases our sensitivity to pain. There's a million more theories as well, including candida overgrowth, environmental exposures that interfere with hormonal processes, and more. 
Basically, no one really knows why it happens, just that it does happen, and luckily, we have some pretty rad ways of treating it that don't involve putting your body into temporary menopause or removing your uterus. The most common place for endometriosis to show up is in what's called the pouch of Douglas, or the cul-de-sac. It's basically this little invagination between the uterus and the rectum. This is where 71.9% of endometriosis is found. I actually got into an argument with somebody about this a few days ago because she said that the fallopian tubes were the most common spot for it to grow. But in fact, it only grows on the fallopian tubes 4.3 to 6.3% of the time. On the other side of things, adenomyosis, remember that's when the uterine lining grows in the walls of the uterus? It happens in 27 to 70% of women with endometriosis and 54% of young women who have infertility, dysmenorrhea, or heavy periods, and in 9% of asymptomatic women. There's also a great debate about why this happens, but it's most likely due to abnormal protein expressions and increased vasculature density within the pelvis, as well as cells growing too fast before the uterus zones have fully developed. The main symptoms of adenomyosis are painful periods, heavy periods, and large clotting. Sometimes all three can be completely debilitating, sometimes only one or two of the symptoms are the worst part. So now we're getting close to the end of pelvic pain, I want to briefly talk about red flag symptoms with pelvic pain. I know my women out there with chronic pelvic pain deal with a lot on a daily basis, and sometimes it's hard to know when the pain is too much or has moved to an acute situation. I know that sometimes I'll just be going about my day and I'll be struck with severe 10 out of 10 stabbing pain, and because I'm a hypochondriac, I'll be like, okay, is today going to be an emergency room day? And I'll just, I'll sit with the pain for a little while, and then I'll make my decision based on how long it lasts. I honestly haven't been to the ER since 2019, which is a record for me, and I went not because I was having a pain flare-up or anything, but because I'd accidentally attempted to chop my finger off the day before school started, and then I had the grand pleasure of looking like E.T. when I started med school because of the giant bandage that I had on my finger for the first few weeks. So I know from first-hand experience that it can be difficult to know when the pain is normal pain versus bad pain. Here are some red flag chronic pelvic pain symptoms that tell you it's time to see a doctor. If you're having unexplained weight loss, blood in your stool, perimenopausal irregular bleeding, postmenopausal vaginal bleeding, and bleeding after sex. If you're experiencing any of those on a chronic basis, it's time to see a doctor and let them know what's going on. If you're having acute pelvic pain changes, the red flags to look out for are shifting pains, so pains that move from one area to another, pain that wakes you up from your sleep, if you're feeling rigid or like your abdomen can't relax, or if you're having signs of shock like your skin is cool, clammy, pale or bluish, or your pulse and breathing rate are really fast, you're having nausea or vomiting, or if your pupils are enlarged. So that's all I have for you guys today on chronic pelvic pain and gut health. I came up with a name for the top takeaways of the episode. Here it is. The five sassy staples of this episode are 1. Chronic pelvic pain is common. 14 to 24% of reproductive age women experience chronic pelvic pain. This issue isn't going away, and we need to bring way more awareness to it. 2. What you eat matters. Those bugs in your belly, they control way more than just digestion. They control your mood, your levels of inflammation, and your ability to think clearly, etc., etc., etc. 3. Banking off that one, inflammation can affect every single aspect of your life, and so many Americans deal with chronic inflammation every single day, and they don't even know it. Inflammation is a symptom of a disease, and it's your body's way of saying, hey you, pay attention, something's not right. 
Number four, chronic pelvic pain doesn't necessarily come from the pelvic organs. It can also come from your gastrointestinal system, your urinary tract, your muscles and your bones, your nervous system or your immune system, and even your brain. Assuming you know where it's coming from just because it's located in your pelvis is how so many people go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for so long. And number five, women just want to receive personalized care from their doctors. They want to be taken seriously and be reassured, and they want to receive explanations for their conditions. Explanations and education go so much farther than finding a cure. So many people just want to know the why and the what. The how to fix it comes from knowing the basics. Don't forget that. Thank you all for listening this long. I know that this episode has been a little bit longer than usual, but this is a really, really important topic to both me and naturopathic medicine in general. I hope it was as interesting to you guys as it was for me to write. As always, please rate and review Sassy Speculum on whatever platform you're listening on. That means so much to me, and I love hearing what you guys think. I'm going to be posting a few different pictures and schematics to better explain some stuff that I talked about today. So head over to Sassy Speculum on Instagram and give me a follow to check that stuff out. I love visual aids, so I think that they'll be very, very helpful in understanding what the hell I just talked about. You can also follow me on TikTok at Sassy Speculum. I'm absolutely terrible at TikTok, but I'm trying my hardest to get better. I'm way too millennial for that crap, but I'm giving it my best-ish. So please don't forget to rate and review the podcast once you're done listening. If you have any questions, feedback, ideas for new topics, or just want to say hi... You can contact me either on my socials at Sassy Speculum, via email at sassyspeculum at gmail.com, or you can go to www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum to leave me an anonymous message if you'd prefer it that way. And remember, if you're thinking about getting a therapist but you just haven't made that jump yet, sign up for BetterHelp today for 10% off your first month at www.betterhelp.com slash sassyspeculum. Thank you all once again. I love getting to share this info with you guys every other week, and I truly, truly appreciate all of you for listening. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and bye.